Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Michael Karras, who is known as the Bitcoin Rabbi and the author of Bitcoin Money. We talk about education, how money plays a role, and how Bitcoin can help. Michael also tells us about the importance of moral education, how competition can make the quality of education better, and how public school is like keeping your Bitcoins on Coinbase. Shalom, Rabbi. How are you doing these days? Hey, Jimmy. Thanks so much for having me. I am doing great. So where are you right now? So I am in uh, upstate New York. That's where I reside. And we're at the fun stage of the pandemic where it's all about the reopening. And so we've been dealing with that. I mean, New York got hit like on the earlier side of the whole country. You know, schools are supposed to be uh, starting. So I'm on the the reopening board of my synagogue, the re- reopening board of, of the school. Uh, we have a, a family wedding coming up. So that's kind of like its own reopening board. So this is basically a full-time job now is uh, are going back and forth between the, the different, you know, political sides of, of the uh, reopening phases and all of that. So it's just a, a, a lot of fun to to, to be involved in that. For those of our listeners that don't know, you really actually are a rabbi, right? Like that's what you do uh, as your day job. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I am. Uh, so I'm a trained rabbi. I lived and studied in Israel um, for about four years where I uh, studied and did my rabbinical degree um, with some post-rabbinical studies when I came back to uh, America. I am a, what you say, not a pulpit rabbi, meaning I attend a synagogue where we have a senior rabbi who's uh, you know an elder rabbi who's in charge of things. But I do some of the help around uh, like organizational organizational things as far as the synagogue. And then um, I'm a uh, day school teacher. So I teach uh, Judaic uh, Bible, Jewish law, all of those things to elementary, middle, and sometimes high school students, you know, every year. It's it, we, I teach at a small private Jewish day school. And so every year it's different and every year different classes and stuff. I'm, I like to move around and they like to move me around. So that's uh, I, my, my day job is a rabbinic teacher, um, as well as I do some tech stuff uh, on the side. My wife and I do a web and graphic design. So I'm in, I've got my, my hands in a lot of different feet. <laughs> well, uh, that, that's all really interesting because of, uh, you know, obviously your profession and everything, but uh, how did you get uh, decide to go into education and why this particular field of education and how does that integrate with being a rabbi and so on? Um, so a lot of rabbis are um, involved in education. You could say that that is one of the primary positions that a, a rabbi actually has. I really didn't imagine myself in this field at all. Uh, growing up, I was more interested in the idea of law, which was like studying and and debate and that kind of thing. I liked to watch political debate. But when I was in rabbinical school, I found that I had a skill that I could help out my fellow classmates. And then when I was towards the end of the studies, I was uh, given like a student teacher position where I was doing regularly giving classes to people. And so it just kind of developed that I 
was able to do this. Yeah, I have children of my own. So every parent, you know, every parent is a natural teacher for their children. And it's just something I enjoy. So I do both, you know, professionally job teach children's classes, but I also uh, do give adult classes. And I just, I like to, you know, as you know, uh, from my book, which is, you know, just a few pages that tries to get through the the main story of Bitcoin, I really like to try and condense things down into bite-sized pieces into something that that's, that's my, my big focus is to try and make things everybody can digest and understand and especially uh, young people. Yeah. And that book is absolutely fantastic. I was, uh, I was talking to uh, somebody that had given that book to a kid at a birthday party and towards the end of the birthday party, there were like three adults reading that book because they were so intrigued by the title. How, how did you get to writing that book? What inspired you to create it? I came, came out publicly as the Bitcoin rabbi in uh, 2018. It's actually, it's been just uh, almost uh, two years exactly. Like it was uh, fall of 2018. And I said, you know, I'm a rabbi. I, I like to teach people about things. And I, I spend an inordinate amount of time studying and learning about Bitcoin. So I have to make this worthwhile, you know, that I'm actually doing something productive with it because I'm not a, I'm not a, a developer or coder. It's not my, my business, but like, I wanted to do something useful. So I started off just with like tweets and, you know, writing uh, short things and, and doing some video classes, like both for Bitcoin people and to uh, any Jewish people that were interested in Bitcoin, Bitcoin people that were interested in any kind of Torah bits, uh, that Torah bytes that, uh, that might be connected. And I ended up developing a class that's called Bitcoin and Judaism. And it's a like 45 minute hour long presentation that I've adjusted and gone through, which is heavily based on Seyfedean's uh, The Bitcoin Standard. It also has a lot of influence from uh, Peter Schiff, believe it or not. I I've read some of his uh, work and my just learning of economics uh, over the years of Hayek and a lot of Milton Friedman. Those are uh, my influences that I liked a lot. And so going through both from explaining Bitcoin to beginners, as well as explaining where money, just there's a lot of legal, Judaism is a very legalistic religion, which means that it's not just some people know, like there's the 10 commandments, but we actually have 613 and they can uh, cover every single uh, basis of life, including business and monetary dealings and all kinds of judicial rulings and things like that. And so I go through all of the kind of monetary things that even Jewish uh, people, learned people might not be aware of. So anyways, I've got this whole long presentation. And I've got this, you know, I've kind of condensed my year of studying Bitcoin or year or two of studying Bitcoin into this 45 presentation. And then I said, you know what, I can squeeze this even farther. And really, one of the main influences is this book by Peter Schiff, believe it or not, called uh, How Economy Grows and, and Why It Collapses or something like that. I always forget the title, but it's a picture book and uh, kind of goes through building an economy and savings and all of that. And he does it illustrated through fish. And it's really for adults, but it's cute and it has, uses simple language. And I said, you know, we should do that for Bitcoin. We all, I also, I only got the books afterwards, but I realized there's a lot of similarities with the Tuttle Twins books. Have you uh, seen this? those? Those are children's books that tell like libertarian classics 
in children's format. So I, I've got like all these ideas and I, I just put it down. And honestly, it was like a spark of inspiration. I have to say what actually got the book down into, into paper was just like a one sitting of about five hours, just like uh, hand to, to, to keyboard. And, and by the end of it, I had what was a, a really good rough draft. And then my wife is a professional graphic designer and she basically took what was like a, a cute little blog post and transformed it into this piece of uh, artwork that it is with help of, of an artist. Um, but so that was, and I just loved it. You know, I didn't know that it was going to become such a, a big thing as it has, but I, it's, it's taken me places. It's brought me to, to different Bitcoin conferences to meet people. Like I'm, I got to meet you uh, last year when we were in New York together. So that's been, it's been amazing. And I've talked to people that tell me that they, they read it to their children, they read it to their grandparents. And so clearly has hit a, a mark there where it doesn't explain every single detail and every aspect of Bitcoin. There's some things I specifically let left out because I, I think that one thing people do is they try and uh, fill people with too much information and that can they can lose out if you try and explain to people there's a blockchain and there's these private there's these signatures which can validate uh, you know a pri private key pub key and you you start filling people with it and they they just they lose you and so that was my main goal is to that to get people to be able to understand bitcoin in one sitting start the book and go start to finish and then they have this pretty clear idea at least of the economics of bitcoin and so that's what uh i, I i'm glad that we i feel like we accomplished that yeah is this a resource that you wish you had when you started your bitcoin journey i feel like I jumped into it with so much enthusiasm and energy that I took the time, the hours and hours pouring over material because I knew that I wanted to be really deep in this, that I got to very quickly got even beyond this this level. But most people are are just not going to ever do that and not going to want to do that. So for me, I, I don't know that it's something that I needed because I even did have an understanding of Austrian economics. I had an understanding of the uh, basis of money from before writing the book and before even being introduced to Bitcoin. That's why when I first found out about Bitcoin um, and first discovered Bitcoin, like once I really understood it beyond a uh, just like a headline level, I pretty much immediately jumped into it. So it's definitely something that a lot of people, I think it's a good first introduction to Bitcoin. But for me, I had a lot of the basic economic ideas already. Mm. And uh, what was the spark that got you to explore Bitcoin at this deep level? What, what was the impetus? Well, Jimmy, the most important aspect of Bitcoin is the number go up. And so in 2017, as the number was going up, my uh, older brother, who had some interest in Bitcoin earlier, actually, he had friends because he, he went to um, he went to school at the Jerusalem, Jerusalem Institute of Technology. And so he was surrounded by like developers and programmers and things in the early 2000 aughts. And so he was uh, introduced to Bitcoin, but didn't pay that much attention to it. And then in the 2017 run-up, he he decided that it was worthwhile looking into again, and he you know told me to. So he was coming at it from a developer kind of perspective, and said, "Oh, you gotta you know look into this." And then once I saw it, really like gave it a, a few minutes, I understood it immediately from an 
Austrian from an economic perspective, because that's what I had, you know, researched before. Hmm. Well, so let's talk about education a little bit, because this is the background in which you saw Bitcoin when you first uh, first heard about it. What What's the problem with sort of education today? What, what's the why? Why is it so broken? I'll base that on a there's a famous um, verse from the Bible, from the book of Proverbs, uh, which is kind of when uh, rabbis talk about education, you could say this is one of the foundational things. And that's just in Hebrew, it goes, which means uh, you shall educate the child according to his way. Even as he grows older, he will not uh, he will not stray from that. And so the emphasis there is that in, that education, the, the primary determination of its success is whether or not it is catered to the student, whether it's according to his or her way. And so the, the really the comparison of, uh, you know, Bitcoin and education in that, which is kind of an overarching uh, theme, is the uh, centralization versus decentralization, meaning that uh, whether or not the there are a lot of aspects of that. So whether or not the planning of the curriculums, of the schedule, of the testing, all of these things, are they coming from, you know, centralized uh, uh, departments in Washington, D.C. that are telling each student across the country um, how their day should be spent, even though they're, it's a very diverse uh, world, very diverse country, diverse communities, um, even diverse um, priorities amongst different families. And so the idea that we're told that there's this kind of one singular way of how to uh, educate people, I think that is, you know, it's the same thing that there's one singular uh, organization in Washington that decides, you know, how the economy should should be run, how the, you know, what the interest rate should be, what the a monetary supply should be. It's all of this kind of hubris that that the more centralized power knows the best for individuals instead of taking that to, you know, even state, local, but even community and, and directly to family. So I think that's one of the major issues is that it's it that it's a much more uh, centralized as far as the planning of education than what it should be. But that's also related to the funding. And even though there are state and local fundings for education, public education, you know, it really, in most cases, it, it never comes down to the individual getting to choose how they are, where their tax money is going and what school is is funded and how they are. Like very few other things are we given but, you know, basically no choice. In. You know, everybody gets to choose what kind of house they want to live in, what kind of car they want to drive, what kind of food they want to eat, even if they're on some kind of government subsidized program, uh, you know, all of those things, you still get some kind of choice in the matter. But when you're assigned a public school, I mean, unless you have a, quite a lot of money and, you know, I, I send my children to a, a, a very small uh, private school, which it is very difficult to fund for all of the families, but it's such a priority for us. And I, it just seems uh, when you compare it to everything else, I, I think that uh, those, you know, the centralized funding and centralized planning of schools really show like a, a 
problem of priority and a problem of central planning. Yeah. And you're obviously spending a lot of money uh, sending your kids to sort of get the values and education that you want for them. How, how much of that would change if the education wasn't funded by the state? Yeah, that's a good point. You know, uh, Pierre Richard talks about not just if things weren't funded by the state, but another idea of if taxes were funded by Bitcoin, that, you know, one of the things about everything, all of taxes coming from fiat money and and just government spending coming from fiat is that we don't really value. We think money is kind of cheap and the government kind of treats it as cheap. You know, they a billion here, a trillion there, like it's not really valued. And if everybody did have to consider more of the of the value and the cost of their education, both the individuals and the communities, and whether or not that's every person paying for themselves or even in a government uh, payment, but if if we actually had to pay things by taxes, Pierre says that people would demand a lot better quality for what they're paying for from their government if they if the cost of you know if you had to give up your hard earned bitcoins you know to pay tax. Taxes, you, you're going to be a lot more demanding and uh, a lot more scrutinizing on where the government is uh, spending that money. Um, so it is, you know, it's hard to, it, I, I can understand um, some idea of having some government or community socialization in the cost of, of education because, you know, children are children. They don't have any money themselves, so they're all being funded by their parents anyways. I think that it's a righteous thing that we as a society want to pay for young children to be educated, but there's still, there needs to be competition. There needs to be verification that the vow, that what actually people are getting and people can want different things. I mean, that's the, I, I'm sure that I want in my children's education slightly different things than you want in your children's education. And I think that's fine. The trying to like uh, put a one size fits all is what I think is um, one of the most damaging things. And I'll just say that my, uh, for Jewish people, this has been not just a, you know, theoretical in recent times, but getting to choose where your children are educated and what values they are educated. And even just, you know, how all the schedule and the time and all of that in uh, Soviet Russia, where my uh, my family comes from and my you know religious community comes from uh, not that long ago you know in the in the previous uh, generation it was literally you know it, there's kind of a misunderstanding of how uh, religion was discriminated against in soviet uh, in the soviet union um in most cases religion wasn't all out uh, banned meaning the synagogues weren't all burned to the ground. And for the for the most part, you know, churches were still open. Um, they were kind of like uh, derided and uh, mocked by the Communist Party. But what was banned was sending your children to private schools where they could be educated according to what the parents wanted. And so that was the way that the communists felt, you know, old people can be religious and they can do their things in their churches, et cetera, but we need to take the kids and because that's the way that you can control the future. And so, you know, for the negative, that was true then. Um, but the opposite can be true now is that if we get a good holding and a few, both in a personal perspective and in a more global or communal perspective, if we get, you know, raise our standards of, of education, then you, you know, every generation, the whole world becomes a whole new group of people. So you can really change the whole world just by improving education. 
Yeah, and uh, I totally hear what you're saying because there is a centralized entity and you can you can sort of propagandize an entire generation of children through whatever it is that you want to teach them or whatever it is that you want to get them to believe. That's kind of how, at least in the Soviet Union, it worked. Do you feel like that's a danger here in the U.S. or in Europe or, uh, I guess, more civilized Western countries? Well, I don't have that. I I went to public school growing up, but that was a long time ago. And I did have the, I would say, the privilege of going to a very high quality school just based on the uh, zip code that I was in. Um, it was it was one of the the better ranking uh, schools in the country. Um, but I mean, you don't have to look that far. Uh, you know, I try not to watch too much of the news, but I always say that. But it's uh, you know, if you look at who who are the educators, both at a primary and a uh, academic, you know, at the uh, college level, if the, the people that are in charge of it, it does seem that there is a, a bias towards things that not every family will value and may you you know everything is can be subjectively argued but i would argue are not a uh, positive things like a positive look towards uh communist uh communism and socialism uh, ideas like social justice uh things that personally i, I don't and i don't uh, value and i think lots of the people in this country don't value and don't think that it's the the foundation of what what made america a prosperous and good country you know even if some people are going do want to educate their children that way i think that giving each family you know the one way just practically is uh is through a voucher system that everybody can pick you know that's how they do you know for compared to other systems like food stamps you know you can argue should there not be or shouldn't there be should we have a totally you know you know bitcoin there and you know anarcho-capitalists who don't think there should be anything but even let's say you know that there 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 could be some kind of subsidy and 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 paying for it but at least when you get food stamps you get to pick which foods you want to eat here they just you know they slam you in the school and you don't you don't even get to pick your your teachers or anything about it uh it's really unfortunate that that is the system. There are some localities and some areas that some states that do try and do it different and have like charter schools and things, but it's still, I would say the overwhelming majority of the country has a problem of a centralization of power of uh, where each child goes to school. Yeah, it's interesting how you frame it as the student picking the teacher, because in a sense, that's that's the power that I always wished I had when I was in private school. Um, how would you implement that, practically speaking? Other, I mean, I guess there's a voucher system, but like, what would that look like for a parent? Because you do have a lot of these, you know, underperforming schools in the ghetto and so on that they, they've tried very hard. They can't really get rid of the really uh, bad schools, in a sense. Yeah, well, it's uh, I mean, a lot of it is because of entrenched politics. You know, so it's that's mostly a political issue. So I'm not sure what the there are lots of things. How do we how do we get rid of uh, political problems? Unfortunately, it is that is a, a political problem for the the individual. Uh, I think the uh, the only solution is is to take care of it yourself. Is that you literally just have to opt out of the system in what way that you can. Um, which I would recommend the majority of people, especially uh, Bitcoiners, wanting it if they have the means to. Um, you know, either uh, send to a uh, some kind of charter school or private school or homeschooling. My wife actually did homeschooling for several years, her and her siblings. And, uh, you know, it's not 
uh, it's not for me and my family, but I know that a lot of people who are religious and religious Christians and uh, have various different uh, values that they want to make sure that they are, you know, have a significant portion of their day that those values are being embodied to the children. Because I think this is another uh, thing that I, just the focus of education, I, I don't see that the a lot of schools have the right priority of what is the purpose. I, I Even in, in um, Hebrew, actually, the word for education, I don't think has the same connotation as it has in English. The word chinuch, um, education, really means to uh, preparation. And it means preparation in two senses. One is like what we say, like to like prepare for a job, that it's uh, work training, which that seems to be completely out of the, that's another thing that I wanted to get on that topic of what are, besides her values, like what are they, are students learning what, and how can that be improved? Uh, and the other is, uh, you know, teaching people to be mature, responsible, ethical adults and having good values. And so those two aspects of, I don't know that that you can see that as a goal in lots of uh, educational systems. Yeah, I think that's what Aristotle would call moral education. It's getting kids to feel about virtue in a good way instead of uh, sort of resisting it, which happens to uh, be in the human heart. And that's that's an excellent point. I, I don't know how you teach moral education or how you get children to want to be good to their neighbors and things like that. But that that's a really tricky issue. I mean, how would you teach that in an education setting that makes sense, like that that doesn't well, step I think on too many times? I think that I think that um, people that are religious and if their religion is important to them, then they should be learning it in a religious uh, setting. And from a religious perspective. So I encourage people that are, you know, do have a religious values to them, whatever that is, to look for schools that that teach it from their per specific perspective, because that's, you know, they've obviously chose that for themselves and their families. But it, even for people that are not religious, uh, you know, there is uh, philosophical uh, teachings or even just through I guess stories through stories, both fictional and and uh, tr truthful, that are that embody good values. That's basically, I would say, that's the method of of the Jewish school system is you know by reading stories of great men and women that did embody values, and then discussing those you know those things. You would say mo most people would say that they get that from you know Sunday school, but I think that it's more important than you know than just doing it once one hour a week. That's if that's deciding who you are in life. You know, you one not to bring it back to a Bitcoin comparison. The one of the things that Bitcoiners always focus on is uh, a low time preference and a uh, you know really long term thinking. And so at every stage of the educational process, you have to be thinking. You know, how is this developing the child for? the future of both being a, a, a good human being and being a capable human being. And I would say lots of things are very short-sighted, you know, oh, we have to learn this math subject. And every every child has to learn this math subject. And there's not, there's both not a focus on the child as an individual. Is this actually beneficial to them or not? Or are they capable of it or not? And what are the long-term effects of learning this subject? And so having a low time preference because that's, a child only has one education, you know, they only have one childhood, and it really determines in a very large sense who they're going to end up being.
Mm. Yeah, it does seem like the education system seems to be churning out people for either very corporate roles that are kind of like cogs in a machine um, and not really churning out people that can be creative and create things for uh, the rest of us right, and, and contribute to humanity, if you will. What do you think we can do to change the system so that they are actually contributing something rather than having a very high, uh, you know, high time preference like consumerist mindset that they tend to have when they come out of school. Yeah. So you said, um, you know, to creative, uh, that that's one of the, if you are a person that is creating, um, you are by definition thinking of the future and not thinking about, you know, the immediate because you're thinking, you know, you're building something and it might take you a few days or it might take you, you know, if you're doing a project. And so I think um, like skills focused and project focused education, that that's how I would uh, define our, my personal school where I teach. We're very project focused. And so I um, on, in addition to uh, the like Jewish classes I do over the years, I've done um, various skills and projects classes. So meaning in the high school, they will do photography class. I'll do courses in photography, courses in videography, in graphic design. And so uh, with uh, a group of uh, boys, we did a uh, news show where we did every week, I think we did about 12 weeks, and we did the, the Bible lesson of the week in a two-minute two news format. And so what the, the boys were learning about was coming up creatively with an idea, writing a script, editing it, and going through each of the processes that, it, you know, it was amateurish, but it was still cute. And they got to show it to their friends. It was something to, to be proud of. And so giving people something that they are uh, can be focused on, you know, either building a skill or even just examining all the different types of skills, the different types of jobs, so that they know, you know, what the what potentials there are. Um, there's so many things that, you know, didn't all of these types of jobs, you know, you don't really, you come out of high school and what, you know, they didn't, they, you know, about, you know, there's a doctor and a lawyer and a fireman and a baseball player. And you don't know that the, uh, how many different things there are in this world. It's a very, you just get like a very narrow, like I could tell you how to do, um, pre, you know, calculus and how to, you know, do uh, kind of mundane uh, mathematical equations for some reason and like had read uh, segments of a bunch of books, which I don't think were valuable in any case, but I didn't know uh, how to actually, you know, fully create things. And so I feel like for my students, that's one of the things that our school and our principal, and that's what we uh, focus on. And I think that's a very positive thing. So for parents, uh, for homeschoolers who are parents that are doing that, or for, you know, any kind of educators that I, I think that because another thing is then you can focus on each student and they can kind of uh, see what what calls to them. And um, we saw some that were incredible artists, others that were really funny and liked writing scripts or, or different things like that. So it, it gets you both of those advantages that they're becoming, they're being creative and you're, you get each one to focus on their own. It helps to have small, small classes, to have small schools. Just, it's another aspect. De decentralization in the education process, I think is it can't be overstated how important that is. And it's difficult for people to do because it is costly. You know, de as we know, decentralization is a extremely costly added uh, effect, but it might be that education is one of the one things that's worth it.
Well, so speaking of that, how does Bitcoin's decentralization sort of affect education in general? And how does education sort of decentralize in that way? Is it just like sort of Bitcoiners choosing to do kind of like what you and I have done and choosing more private schools and sort of opting out of the system? How, how, how do you see that playing in? So I think Bitcoin shows how, you know, I don't know how, you know, using Bitcoin in education, but I think that it shows kind of a uh, system. One is the internet focused, you know, that the internet is the tool of decentralization. And we're seeing that now in this time of, uh, you know, Zoom education, that there's <laughs> that, that I, that's another thing that, that students need to learn is how to self edge Because, you know, as a uh, programmer, how does a programmer work? You start writing some code, it doesn't work, and then you Google and you find out why it doesn't work, and and you know that's the uh, a big process uh, of of education. And myself, I mean, my schooling was solely from a rabbinical studies. I I never I went to university, but I now do professional uh, web design, and my and uh, my wife does professional graphic design, and that was also never her. A field. And so all of this, there's so many things that can be self-taught that you don't need to rely on, you know, some centralized mandate of, you know, this is where you go to school and this is where you get your source of truth from and, and knowledge from. Um, but Bitcoin kind of shows us that you can, you know, get a, a, a distributed source of knowledge. And so that's what, I mean, it's now it's better than ever. So I, I think that there's a lot to be optimistic about if people actually take the opportunities of, you know, looking for distributed methods of education. And that might be one of the silver linings of, you know, this whole uh, pandemic shutdown thing is that people are looking at alternatives, looking, one, they're looking to modernize their systems. Hopefully uh, that's another problem with a bunch of bureaucracies and, and schools and teachers that it's hard to learn new things and modernize, you know, to, to update your systems and your communications. And so people are being forced to do that. And students and parents are realizing, hey, you know, I can find all these classes and all of this material easier than ever. And maybe, you know, for a fraction of the price or for free. Yeah, it's interesting because if I'm trying to think of what I would want to impart in my children, it's exactly kind of what, what you've already outlined, which is a moral education, right? Having uh, having a good moral compass so that they aren't, you know, scamming people later on and uh, the ability to learn for themselves, like being able to go on YouTube and uh, look, watch a tutorial and be able to do it, that sort of thing. Um, and that that seems to be very far from what the current education system is like. Yeah, the current education system tells you, you know, don't look on what Wikipedia for for information. That's it's not it's not a it's not properly sourced. You know, whatever. At least that's what they said when I was in high school. But uh, maybe things have changed now. I, I, I'm not sure. Um, but there are a lot of things that they that are missing from that. And and most primarily, one of the the important things is the is economics. That's another thing that Bitcoin can teach people, or at least introduce to people. I feel like in for most students, they get like uh, the a like middle school or high school introduction of economics. You know, like supply and demand, and then. They should keep learning, but the teachers kind of like have to skip out the, the whole part where like we ruined money with, you know, fiat unlimited <laughs> printing, because I've said this, that like kids, it, you explain Bitcoin to kids and you explain it, you know, from the, you start kind of with gold. Everybody can understand gold. 
every single person, you know, I think it's ingrained. It's actually built into, you know, that gold is mentioned, you know, in the sec, in the very, second chapter, almost at the very beginning of, of the Bible, you know, at, at, at Genesis. It's right, it's right there in the beginning. So I think there's something ingrained into the DNA of, you know, the value of gold. But people understand that. And then by extension, kids that are born in a digital age, what I call you know, kids, especially that are born after January 3rd, 2009, the with the Genesis block, they're Bitcoin kids. They're the Bitcoin generation. <laughs> um, and they are they're They are digital native and they are going to be Bitcoin native. And so I don't think that it's a difficult thing for them to to go from, OK, I understand what value is. I understand what money is and I can understand what Bitcoin is and they'll understand economics from that perspective. But if you try and, you know, give them a. Keynesian and and modern monetary theory. I just listened to Peter McCormack, modern monetary theory. You really have to run loops around to make that make any kind of sense. So I I think there's a reason why they don't go into that and teach that to kids. But you know of of macroeconomics, but also there, you know, people need to learn how to just their own personal economics, which is another thing that is seems to be completely lacking from. The majority. I mean, there might be some great schools out there and great teachers out there that focus on it. But the fact that so many kids today don't know how to save, don't know how to invest, don't know, you know, about interest rates, don't know about anything. It almost makes you wonder if there's, you know, not a conspiracy, but like, is there a reason why? Like, why? I, I haven't heard any argument for why it's not crucially important that kids be learning, you know, basics of monetary knowledge. Well, how much of that do you think is the centralized system? And that whole system is kind of funded by fiat money. So can they really teach, say, Austrian economics and that kind of system that would like sort of undermine the entire funding platform? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I don't know. I, I've always um, been subscribed to the uh, philosophy of never attribute to malice what you can to uh, what is incompetence. It, to incompetence. Exactly. So I don't know if there's some kind of a grand plan of it, um, or if it might just have some kind of historical basis of that. That's of our system is this, you know, the traditional. It, it just seems that the the classroom image, you know, you see classrooms today and they look very much like classrooms from the 1800s. And it just seems like the whole system that's built is, is, is like archaic in a way. And so it's missing some of these, some things that seem obvious uh, to us, but they've just been built into it for so long. Um, And people who that are in those fields, they can't see it some other way. So I'm sure it's just a just an oversight. At least I, I haven't heard <laughs> strong arguments of why it's why the you know reading, writing, and arithmetic uh, system that that we have today, which is is the same as it was a hundred something years ago, is the absolute be all. I mean, that's it's not the traditionally how the what the you know Jewish traditional education system is, which is a lot older. But uh, and I'm sure there are other systems, but. This is this is what we have in America, at least in the public school setting. Yeah, and I, I would sort of describe that as like an educational industrial complex or something like that. But there is yeah. sort of like that momentum to it, like you were saying, right? Like what, what they've been doing for like 100 years, they continue to do, not because it's necessarily the best or the most efficient, but just because there's a momentum, right? Like that, that that's the way they've been doing it. And they don't want to stop it because that's how they ha- they don't want to really change or something. 
Yeah, that that seems that seems like it, it is what you know my my personal experience of it. And like I said, I, I haven't been in a public school setting as a student in you know over a decade or more than that. But uh, so maybe there are maybe things have been changing, or or maybe uh, individual parents and teachers and community schools have figured out uh, how to do it. Like like I said, in my little small school, we have like about a hundred students. We we do things our own way. Um, so maybe there are people that are, but that wasn't my experience, at least. And that's not the kind of experience that I would want to put my children through. How do you think this educational system changes after this pandemic? Because clearly there's a lot of uncertainty about which schools are going to open and so on. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge question. I have no, I don't know how this thing, I don't know how and when it ends, like I said, I hope that there's that this is a wake up call um, for parents that uh, may and both at the, um, you know, at the primary level and for the higher education level, that maybe they don't need to be spending tons of money and that there are, you know, better alternatives that are can be done at home. Maybe that the data doesn't need to be so long. I mean, it's pretty obvious that the that the uh, school schedule uh, is built around more of a daycare system, meaning that we need to keep uh, people occupied so that their parents can go to work. I don't know if they're going to want to change it, but hopefully as some individuals can see and take this opportunity, you know, to, to learn an instrument uh, online. And, um, you know, my brother did a interesting thing besides for uh, you can get a lot of apps and videos uh, for learning piano. He just uh, for his children hired a person who just I think just doesn't on YouTube, I, maybe found him some other way and uploads classes and does classes online with, uh, you know, my niece and nephew to teach them their instruments. And so I th- I hope that that's the positive that comes out of it. I'm not sure if schools are going to get the lesson or if they're ours is going to be open. You know, thank God for that. In <laughs> in New York, I'm pretty sure most of the schools are, especially my personal school, because uh, we do have a smaller class size and we, we have the just practically we have the space for it. Um, I think it's very important for people to kids to be in with other kids and be, you know, socially interacting, whether or not if some people can homeschool and they can also make that. But I don't think that it was a healthy thing. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty. you know, if we could redo the past, I, the, the verdict is still open on, you know, shutdowns or not or whatever. I'm going to save my judgment on that till some, you know, further time comes out, even if I have my thoughts on it right now. But um, I, I don't think that it's a smart thing to keep it, keep them closed for another year or six months or how that I think kids need to have, you know, the interaction with each other, the, the socializing and, and that kind of thing. I think that's really important um, that they're in some kind of, you know, you have to learn. That's how life works. You have to be with other people and deal with tough situations. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, a, a large part of the reason why a lot of these school districts uh, seem to resist opening is the teachers just don't want to go back. Uh, they they seem to have so much power as a union and so on that they're basically saying we're we're not going to teach if the if, you know if you send them back and this is like risking our lives or something like that. The, that the, that seems the to teacher, be a common the teachers refrain. cartels. The teacher cartels. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's another centralizing power that, uh, you know, it's that 
you know, put that pits the, you know, who is the focus of the school for? Is it for the students or for, is it for the parents? And it seems very bizarre that there is this, you know, that there are, I mean, if you're in a private school, then you don't have to deal with that necessarily unless they are. Although the, the, the teachers unions do often lobby to have um, these restrictive things even put on private schools, which can be damaging. But uh, I'm glad that I, both as a teacher and a parent, uh, that's, I'm not directly having to deal with that. I imagine that's difficult. Uh, political, it's, that's the thing with, with all things, you know, with all these political problems, the, the best thing that you can do and what, what Bitcoin also teaches is, you know, it's very hard to, you know, run for libertarian and try and win and try and give votes to this. The easiest thing to do is just opt out in a peaceful, you know, alternative system and just say, I'm not playing your game anymore. It's not fair. It's rigged against us here. I'm, I've got this alternative. And because of the same thing, which, which allows Bitcoin, an internet, which is relatively decentralized and open and free, you know, individuals making choices, those same values uh, that, that give us Bitcoin technology in general, give, give us Bitcoin can allow people to opt out of that system and into the system that allows them to focus on the values and the education and the creativity and all of those things that we talk about for their own family. Yeah, I've always wondered like why the education system is just sort of continuing on the path that it is, because in a sense, we have the internet now. And that means that you could get the best lectures from the best people around the world. And you don't have to settle for, you know, some, you know, person that just uh, graduated out of uh, teaching school and they, you know, they they barely know how to teach and don't doesn't, you know, that doesn't know how to like control the classroom and can't present very well, all that stuff. I mean, in a sense, like it, you can compartmentalize some of these roles and make it so that all the students learn from the best. And yet that's not the reality today, uh, except for a few things like Khan Academy. Or- yeah, that, uh, that that might be something that I did see that grow. Um, there have been the Jewish schools uh, during this shutdown. They have been kind of joining together. And instead of every single teacher from every school teaching their class, I mean, there's been a lot of that. I was teaching and I was doing Zoom classes with me and my 10 students and doing some of that. But there have been also one teacher, especially at the very beginning when nobody, like in March, when like no one had this planned out yet. And like some of the older teachers didn't even know how to do a Zoom or how to do any of this stuff. They were still trying to, and they were trying to make the schedule and everything. Um, so at the very beginning, there were schools that were online because there are some rabbis and and Jewish people that live in like far flung places where there are no where they're the only like let's say they're a rabbi and they uh, provide the kosher food for a certain area, but there's not a community around them, so there's no actual school there. So they attend um, an online school. There are multiple of these that that you can sign up for that are just every single student is remote and lives in some place where there's not a big enough Jewish community to have a Jewish private school. And so these, um, these people in these schools were kind of opening up and making themselves available. So you would have, you know, one teacher and students from now, the problem with that is that you can't, there's, you can't have the interactive focused, you know, uh, one-on-one attention, but for some things you don't necessarily need that. So you're, you know, for some things you do need the, the one-on-one attention. And especially if a student is falling behind or something or needs has uh, some kind of learning uh, deficit, you know, deficit or something and they need extra attention. So then 
great, you know, have teachers be in person. Uh, that's a good thing. But for specific subjects, yeah, I think, I mean, videos, animations, all kinds of, I mean, my kids, they they love learning history from animated videos that, that show you battles and show you all kinds of things. Like the, uh, my kids know more about the Revolutionary War from um, Liberty Kids, you know, which is like a PBS uh, historical cartoon show about the... Uh, about the United U.S. Revolution than they would, and they're they're young kids than they would from a textbook or from listening to a teacher tell them about it. What do you think the long term goals of Bitcoin? How does that fit into sort of the the mentality that people will get into with regard to education? What do you wish for education as a result of Bitcoin? What What do you hope for? Yeah, the 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 goal of Bitcoin is to empower the individual. That is what the purpose is. That's why it's a you know, uh, confiscation resistant, censorship resistant, um, dilution resistant, inflation resistant, all of those things give, take the power away from the central authority and give it to the individual because why not? I mean, they, people should have control over their own money. And so, you know, technology can also, um, empower the individual with their own education and their children's and their family's education. And I think that there just needs to be more, just like with Bitcoin, maybe people don't realize they might think, well, the system right now is good enough. You know, the financial system has been good enough for me, but we maybe don't even realize what, you know, how much better it could be. That's how I kind of feel about, you know, the United States, a lot of people are happy. You know, a lot of people are successful. A lot of people have, you know, savings or have investments or something. Some people are doing well, you know, you know the United States is the 1%, you know, we're in the top of a lot of uh, success, but we don't even know what potential greater there is when individuals are, are will be pow- empowered empowered with their own sovereignty over their money and their finances and with their education. And so the the same way that the internet uh, you know empowers people to have a voice to speak out and to share their ideas um, and empowers people with their money with Bitcoin. So a lot of technology and it's new and people just need to discover it. They need to to wake up to it. Maybe the, uh, you know, one, if people have a Bitcoiners in particular, if they have this mindset about their Bitcoin, hopefully they will have this mindset about uh, their children's education and not leave it to, you know, the, the lowest common denominator of, uh, you know, the public school education um, and actually take uh, take initiative with it. So, you know, sending your kids to public school is basically like leaving your Bitcoins on Coinbase. You know, that's at best, you know, take, take real, you, know, you have to take sovereignty. You have to take initiative and you have to, you know, be, be an active, uh, an active player in education. And, and also, you know, you have to, you have to have uh, a goal. You have to have long-term um, you know, long-term perspective uh, in mind. Um, just like with your with Bitcoin, you can't just be thinking, you know, I have to do this thing and that thing. And that, you know, it really has to be a, a holistic perspective. You know, with Bitcoin is a long-term project and educating children is a long-term project. I mean, the official system is, you know, until they're 18 or 20 something, whatever, but obviously it's a lifelong thing. And so having the, the right mindset when you go into it, 
Um, you know, one, when you're with Bitcoin, you're having the right mindset. Why do I have Bitcoin? Why do I care? What's it for? Um, and so thinking, you know, I'm doing this for the future because it's fair, because it might be, hopefully it's profitable and that I'm going to do good things with my Bitcoin, which is what I talk to when I'm talking to my fellow rabbis and things, you know, people are questioned about Bitcoin and then, you know, what is it? What can it be used for? I say all the things that you can do good with money, you, you know, you can do all of those good things with Bitcoin. So every Bitcoiner needs to have that perspective of what I'm going to do it. What positive thing am I going to do that with that? And the same with their education and with the uh, with their children. Of what positive thing can they do? And so um, one thing that um, my rabbi, the, the my grand rabbi, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, he emphasized that every child should um, spend uh, time at the beginning of their day and have a moment of silence. And so this could act, this actually works in a lot of different uh, schools, even in uh, public schools and non-religious schools, because it's not a moment of it's not necessarily a moment of prayer. Like it's not guided in prayer, but for each individual, if that's the kind of family they come from, if that's the kind of belief. But they start off every day and they take a minute, and the teacher, you know, or whoever it is, uh, instructs them. You know, we're, we have a moment of silence now. Everyone do their meditation or their prayer or their thing. Each person individually and think about you know what you want to be today and what your goal is and what your you know what how you're going to be good today and that you know puts people in the right state of mind and uh so that those are things that i think could cross over between you know bitcoin holders and uh educators and parents who are dealing with education do you see the education system changing in the next 20 years as a result of you know i guess more low time preference thinking I, I hope that it's not just one education system. I, I would hope that uh, it becomes more widespread and more common that people take uh, their own education. I mean, the, the, I would say that the I'm not in, deeply involved in it because uh, I, we don't homeschool, but I, I think that that is becoming more of a movement. I would I would not be surprised at all if we don't see a huge spike in homeschooling, which I think is a good thing. I think for lots of kids, I've, I've met many homeschoolers. My, Like I said, my wife and her siblings did homeschooling for some years. And uh, I think if parents can do it and want to do it, and they can do it either with groups of students, groups of families, uh, which is generally how people say, oh, homeschool is they just sit at home. And, and you, <laughs> that's not the case. Usually they do it as groups. You know, if you're not, if people aren't familiar, it's, you know, in your town, there will be like a few dozen homeschooling families and they'll like go on trips together and will sometimes like join together for classes and stuff like that. So homeschooling can have very uh, good social uh, aspects to it uh, as well. Um, so I, I would love to see the system, you know, we call now everybody when we talk about the edu the primary education system now, we kind of have a vision of it as this, you know, monolith of uh, public school. And I don't know if that's going to improve or how it will. I have to be, I guess, optimistic and say, I hope it will. Maybe it will be forced to. But even if it doesn't, I would hope that people take uh, take it in their own hands and don't just leave it up to the state to take care of because we've seen how what they do with pretty much every other project they're given. Mm. Well, do you think the state will lose some of its power because of Bitcoin, right? In, in terms of being able to fund a giant thing like education? Uh, yeah, I hope that the state's power is put on check. I think for the right, for the, the time being, and for you know the hi recent history, you know, I don't think America 
America has a particularly evil state, uh, you know, at least relative to other governments from other times. So I'm not like really afraid of it. But I mean, for most of history, uh, Jewish people have been and lots generally religious people have been persecuted by states and particularly for the way that they want to educate. So the just the very idea of states not having a supreme power um, as far as the education of children, I think would be a good thing. And like I said, even if they want to be part of the funding process, if that's how that's going to work out, it doesn't need to be that they are fun. Just like there are no state run grocery stores. I mean, that would be ridiculous if we thought, you know, how come we have state run schools, but no state run grocery stores, you know, explain to me, I'm sure somebody could and some of the whatever, you know, I'm sure someone will make that argument, but just on its face value, you know, if we can, if we can let the free market, uh, give us grocery stores and cell phone stores and car manufacturers and all of this stuff, you know, why can't it, it just let us have, you know, education and schools as well. Mm, yeah. It's interesting because there are state run grocery stores in Venezuela. And oh, you know. sure. Right. Yes. <laughs> Not ones that, that we would want to be part of that. If you yeah. basically think of that, it, would you want to uh, get your food from a state run grocery store? Probably not. So then, why do you want? Would you want to get your education from a state-run, uh, you know, education store? Yeah, that, that, that's a great analogy. Would you want to buy your uh, car from? Would you want to buy your car from the state-run uh, a car manufacturer? No, not really. And uh, the the thing about the state-run grocery store in Venezuela is that most of the time it's empty. They can't get any yeah. food. And, even uh, just think about it's a very short ships. window. We don't even buy our rocket ships from the state-run rocket ship manufacturer anymore because <laughs> Elon Musk can do it for a hundredth of the price, you know, and it's much cooler looking. So, uh, you know, that's even if the state wants to have some, you know, involvement in things, you know, outsource it. Do do just outsource it to to uh, individuals and let people choose. Uh, that's people. That's one of the main things that I got from Milton Friedman is that you know people make the. Uh, he says that you know there are there are I think four different ways to spend money. There's a, a person spends his own money for himself. Uh, then they're looking for the best value for the lowest price. They're going to do the best job. Then there are you're spending somebody else's money on yourself then you want the best value but you don't care about the price then there's you spend your money on some for somebody else you want the best price but not the best value and the worst is when you're spending someone else's money on someone else you that you don't want you don't really care that much about value and you don't care that much about price and that's what the government does every single time it it, it spends and pays on for a program Mm. And uh, for that reason, the education suffers from a quality problem, which uh, which we've been discussing this. All right. So exactly. final question for you, say 20 years from now, what do you think education will look in this sort of new world, uh, assuming all the best things happen with respect? Uh, that's a, I'm terrible at making predictions. I don't know. It's hard. To, okay. I mean, it's hard to say. I imagine that it's going to be a lot of people... Um, you know, have their, uh, that younger and younger, I think, and this might be good or bad, I, I don't know, but I think younger and younger, everyone's going to have their own, you know, phone tablet, everyone's going to have their personal communication device. And that's going to be their window to all, you know, just like it, I mean, similar to now, that's the direct, for me, uh, the, the phone and the tablet have become more and more involved uh, with 
with my life, both from uh, uh, as a business and and personally, um, and I see that growing as it can do more and more things. Um, it can deal with your finances. It can deal with your communication. It, it can be your record keeper. Uh, you know, once once my th- once my phone can uh, be my identification, you know, and my uh, the thing that opens up my car, then that'll be pretty much all I'll need. You know, when I get dressed in the morning, when I go out. Now I need a bunch of other things. So uh, that's one thing I am. I think that students will be have their you know education device, and hopefully it will hopefully it'll be set that parents do have some oversight on what they are you know what they can do with it and and when and all of that. But I think that a lot more a lot more resources resources are going to be available, and uh, I hope that kids do take the time and and are learning different will learn different skills. I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like it will be silly to predict what the what the uh, types of technology will be in 20 years. I'm sure I'll sound, uh, you know, uh, foolish on that. So I don't know. But I'm, I'm, I'm just generally I'm an I'm an optimist. I'm, I'm an eternal optimist that uh, that the people will move in the right direction. So I hope I'm right. <laughs> okay, so where can our uh, listeners find you? Yeah, I'll just say if if Bitcoiners do as well as uh, as I think they will, and if Bitcoiners have you know as much influence and power and move things in the right direction, uh, you know, and ho- hopefully the people that are doing the right things now have more children and have the the more successful children. I think that's what I, I believe will lead us in the uh, in the positive direction. So I think there is some reason to my optimism, not just it's not just a uh, hopium. But anyway, so I'm on yeah, I'm on Twitter uh, six twenty four six basically. Uh, I, I I don't I don't roll on Shabbos on uh, Saturdays. I am uh, <laughs> I'm offline. But other than that, you can find me on Twitter at, at uh, the Bitcoin Rabbi. Uh, I have a website. The, pretty much most places, the Bitcoin Rabbi. Uh, dot com and I give I love to talk to people I uh, do give my presentations um, at synagogues mostly I've been doing it over Zoom lately um, and uh, I like to help people learn about Bitcoin and people that have questions about Judaism and Torah I mean that's my expertise uh, so to speak and I, I love I get so many people on Twitter come just come to me and like go into my DMs and ask me about it, whether it's people that are uh, Jewish uh, atheist Muslim, uh, Christian, all kinds of uh, different people come in and, and ask me questions. And I love talking. That's one of the, the great pleasures of being in the Bitcoin community is getting to talk to all of these people from around the world and all these different backgrounds and stuff. So, you know, find me and uh, and I'm happy to, to chat. Well, I mean, that sounds like another whole podcast on its own. It's talking about (laughs) what you just said. Uh, But thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Um, Bitcoin fixes this. (laughs) Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Michael Karras can be found at The Bitcoin Rabbi on Twitter and TheBitcoinRabbi.com. Until next time, Fiat Melendez.